Welcome back to Stories with Brad. I'm Brad. Well, here I am again, laying out my most horrific mistakes in a somewhat public fashion. I do it because I have seen the true power of stories. People will not do things they don't believe in, and we should never assume malice where there is incompetence. I'm on a writing journey to believe, or maybe in hopes to discover, I can tell these stories in a meaningful way. You're getting a look, well, actually a look and a listen, at the beginning. These are the prequels. Maybe you or someone you know could learn from me, from my own incompetence. Just know my most regrettable stories led the way to my most treasured ones. As diametrically opposed as these are, the two somehow occupy a similar space. This story needs to be told in the order that it occurred. Mistakes and all. Of course, I would do it differently now if I could, and that's the beauty of the future gaze upon the past. This story, however, it seems to serve more than just me now. I'd like to say this is a story about forgiveness, but that may not be the case. This may very well be a story about vanity. A certain vanity born from luck, mistaken as success. The tricks we play on ourselves to help us get through. It might be a story about what can happen when a certain flavor of overconfidence is behind the wheel and your luck runs out. All luck runs out, eventually. I guess I'll let you be the judge. I just tell it like it is, what happened, and when. Full disclosure, I've written about this situation before in the pages of the BMW Motorcyclists of America magazine, but not like this. This is far more raw and might be, as the great storyteller himself, Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Here is episode three from my series, Lessons from Baja, California. I hope you enjoy. I'm the kind of person who has to be extra careful with certain things. I sometimes forget I'm just a regular guy. And that may lead to times when inevitably... I mess things up. The law of averages explains a small portion of these quote-unquote mess-ups will be worse than the others, and there is no escape from them. Experience has taught me time after time I have to be extra careful and not let myself get overly confident or cocky, as I like to call it. For me, this is a difficult balance. When I really dive into something, I put my whole self into it, like blinders on a horse. I become so focused, the whole world seems to fall away. A chef might tell you too much of anyone's spice may spoil the soup. I try to remind myself about the value of balance. Confidence over cocky. We cannot eliminate our mistakes, only hope to minimize them. Truthfully, I'd say that in the past year of riding, I had been doing much more than just testing my limits. The evening I submerged the GS was both a gift and a curse. My feeling at the time became less important than the new hurdle I had given myself. Seems as if it only took a big puddle of water to stop me dead in my tracks. As clear as the setting sun reflected off the pond of broken dreams, my luck had run out. 
I sat in my hotel room, staring at the ceiling, listening to the windows rattle in their tracks from the Baja wind, and watching the fan going through its off-balance cycles, each taking it closer to its last. Laying there, still trying to forest gump myself out of this situation I'd put myself in. There will be times when it sucks to suck, and this was one of them. John was gone now, heading onward towards Cabo on his own. He had done all he could do to help me. I was alone now as well. The last two days had been a whirlwind of trying to fix the bike. Fixing one thing only to find another, bigger problem to overcome. I was stuck in a country that was not my own. Wanting to continue, but thinking more and more about throwing in the towel and heading home. Whatever that meant. I'm no mechanic, but I know my way around a little bit. And I had my cell phone, which brought me the entirety of the internet. I felt every minute pass that night on the beach. Even without feeling like I slept, I do remember having a dream. A reoccurring one. Not exactly a nightmare, but close. My eyes popped open to the very first light rays. The sunrise was spectacular that morning. The reds and pinks, so vibrant. The pictures I took, they looked over-processed even in their raw form. With daylight growing by the minute, I gathered my tools and made an area for the parts I'd be pulling off the bike. My metal coffee cup would hold all the nuts and bolts and easily lost small bits. In my mind, I had a plan, and now it was time for the execution. That morning, I learned... Not all operating tables are clean and sanitized. Wrench in hand, minutes led to hours. John was silent as he rose and attended to his morning duties. He started a fire and tried to warm himself while I pulled the bike apart, often swearing under my breath. What was I even thinking? Bringing this overly engineered, fragile monster this deep into the land of broken toys? The air filter came out dripping wet, and I could see puddles of water deep inside the airbox. I took the exhaust apart and poured the water out onto the sand. Disassembled the crash bars, pulled the plugs. I asked John to film me as I turned the engine over. Water sprayed out like a two-wheeled water feature. Geysers taking their turn from left to right. Oh, don't worry, it gets better. Earlier in the year, in Utah, I knew I had stressed the bike. I thought I had smoked the battery during a tough ride in some extreme heat. The bike was turning over slowly after that point, and I knew I would need to be careful not to kill the battery altogether. Because once a battery dies, it may not come back to life. Something about the acid and the electrolytes, whatever. So back in the sandy operating room, I had finished evacuating as much water as I could. I put the bike back together and tried to start it. No dice. The battery was now too weak to turn over the bike with its plugs installed. So that was another step in the wrong direction. Okay. There's more than one way to wrap a burrito, I thought. I dug deep into my bag to find a toe strap I had brought for just such an occasion. A three-inch wide, 15-foot-long ratchet strap. I had it wound up tight in a ball and zip-tied. The plan was, John could pull my overweight friend and I with his KTM 650, and I would pop the clutch in, like, second or third gear. Should be enough to get it started. Not a bad plan. But first, for some food. It was just into the afternoon at this point, and John had looked on as I threw things and cussed up a storm every time I had to get on my back and ended up with more glass and cactus protruding from my flesh and arms. His fire was going good now, 
He had balanced a few sticks against each other near the fire to dry as wet items from our impromptu swimming session the night prior. I grabbed my motorcycle pants and tried to set up my own driftwood drying rack, precariously hanging the pants within drying range. Life is a balance, I guess, and I was spinning all the plates. John came over and asked how things were going. I thought good, all things considered. I told him about my towing plan as I shoveled tortilla and cheese into my mouth so fast I was almost choking. He accepted and told me he was surprised with how much I was able to do with such limited tools. It's amazing how even the tiniest amount of encouragement can seem to fill a ship's sails. Still wearing my sandals, I pushed the mostly disassembled GS into position behind John's bike. I wrapped the toe strap around his foot peg and back to mine on the opposite side of the bike. The battery didn't have enough cranking amps to turn over the engine, but I knew it would have enough to spark, and once I had ignition, the bike would start charging itself, so I just need to keep it running for an extended period and I should be good. Getting my helmet and double-checking the strap, I thought to myself, this is what dreams are made of. I sure hope I can make some luck of my own here. If I honk my horn, just stop, I yelled to John. He gave a thumbs up while looking at me through his rear view. John started off slow, getting us both just enough speed to put our feet on the pegs. Shifting into second, he began to gain speed, keeping one eye on me while also one eye attended to the road ahead. I slowly let out the clutch, and the rear tire just slid on the visibly sandy dirt. Pulling John's bike with an unfamiliar torque, he reacted. We were running out of room... Rather than trying again in the same direction, we turned the bikes around to try again. Starting slowly again, he shifted into second, gaining speed. I had the bike in third gear now, slowly letting out the clutch. Chug, chug, chug. Vroom! She's alive, I screamed. All of the indicators illuminated on my heads-up display, including the red battery indicator. Not surprisingly, as the battery was low. We stopped and took off the toe strap. John bound off his bike and gave me a high five. Hells yeah, he said. Sandy, tired, and a bit bloody, we were happier than two teenage boys who had just learned how bra straps work. I still had some parts to reinstall on the bike, but I could accomplish that task while the bike sat idling. I apologized to my two-wheel friend as I bolted on the last of the parts, promising to be more careful, more observant. As I gathered my things, I was smelling smoke. I looked towards the drying rack. I found my pants completely on fire. Not surprising, because I had never been good at laundry. Oh great, that's less than desirable, I said with a big sigh, walked over, watching the flames dance on the fabric. I put them out by shoving them into the sand. The shins of both legs were more than well done. Let's add barbecue pants to my list of screw-ups. I evaluated the damage as mostly peaceful, but still wearable. The knees in front of the shins were pretty crispy, but only a few spots had burned all the way through. Could be worse. I put them on thinking this was the last of my worries. And with the GS still idling, I packed all of my belongings back into their respectable locations, save one, the toe strap now lived in my tank bag for easy access. Gonna need that guy, I thought. John, having packed up all his things hours before, walked up, pointing to my pants, with a questionable look painted on his face. What happened to your pants, he asked. I thought you liked barbecue, I said. We both laughed as this casualty wasn't near the level that we had been dealing with. I gotta get some food, man. Let's head into town, and I'll buy lunch. We can plan our next steps. I told him this, knowing I needed to get my head on straight. Each under our own power now, we rode down the main drag of Loretto, and I noticed a sign that said, Augies. And it looked like there was life inside. I pulled into the parking spot right in front and pointed for John to share the other half. I turned my key to the off position, and the bike shut down like normal. I knew I would probably need a push or a tow to start again, but 
but I couldn't leave it running on the road by itself while we ate inside. We walked in and asked to see menus. The bartender handed us menus in English. Very clearly, this was a local expat bar. I wanted pizza so badly, but I knew I would be disappointed. We ordered our food, and I got out my map. We were about to head into another remote, sandy region. I began to think about the what-ifs of our situation. Pointing on the map to the region where we had been heading towards, I told John, You know, if I stall the bike, I may not be able to start it again. Thinking of the deep, sandy cliffs we endured just the day before, depending on the conditions, you may not be able to tow me out to solid ground, or it might be really far. To me, this sounds like the beginning of a story where one of us ends up with a broken ankle. John just looked at me and shrugged, indicating he would let me decide. Now, towing bikes with bikes is sketchy. Using a small bike to tow a big bike is an added layer of sketch. Our food arrived, and we ate like two starving dogs in silence, filling our mouths almost to the point of suffocation. It was 3 p.m. My conscience was telling me we were on the wrong side of the afternoon to be thinking about heading back into the bush while putting aside my bike's condition. I had to make the hard choice. Finishing my food, I pushed the plate towards the center of the table as if in submission. I'm afraid we're going to need to stay the night here tonight. I'll find a mechanic to charge my battery. Saying the words felt like the right choice, but still landed with a thud. We agreed, if we only lose one day in this ordeal, it's not the end of the world. Where are you going to find a mechanic? John asked. I pointed over to a fairly round man, sitting at the bar with his legs dangling in the ocean breeze. He was on a laptop with paperwork all around him. I think that's the owner, I said. This is an expat place. I bet he knows a local mechanic who can charge my battery overnight. John nodded, finishing the last of his food. He went on to the baño to wash up, and I walked over to the man at the bar. Excuse me, sir, are you the owner? I asked. That's my name on the wall. How can I help you? He replied. He had an English accent, but I couldn't really place it. It sounded a little Australian or something. I explained my situation, finally landing on needing a mechanic to charge my bike battery. Not a problem, he said. Do you want me to call him and have him meet you here? he asked. I all of a sudden realized I placed the cart before the horse. I knew I had another question. We needed a place to stay. And a cheap place, like probably the cheapest place. He offered his suggestion for a hotel while he wrote the phone number of the mechanic on a bar napkin to go style for me. I liked this guy. He was straight to the point with that certain tone adding comfort. John now, back from the restroom, I told him about my exchange with Augie. We had a destination for the night, and I had a phone number for the local mechanic. I thanked Augie and left a generous tip for the server, putting the money on the bar. He waved and told us to come back again. Out in front of the bar, we moved the bikes into towing configuration, and I grabbed my tow strap from the tank bag. Just tow me to the hotel at the end of the road, I yelled. John gave me the thumbs up, and we started the wheels turning again. The next morning, I arrived at the mechanic shop the minute it claimed to be open, in hopes my battery would be done and able to hold the charge that it received during the night before. I waited a while for the owner. Must be a slow day, as he was about 30 minutes late. With a big smile, he arrived, Noticeably apologetic in recognition of my waiting, I watched him disconnect the battery from the charger, the LEDs now green, where they had once been red. All signs are pointing to adventure, I thought. I asked how much he wanted for the charge. 
He just shook his head while holding his hands up. I put a 10 peso coin on the counter and thanked him with a wide and grateful smile. I was practically running back to the hotel. I needed to throw this battery back in the bike, and of course, John was waiting again on me. He had a true gift, a silent and stoic patience unknown to most. Never once did he pressure me in any way. He never probed or questioned my actions. He was just there. If he went off, as he often did, he would let me know when he would be back. And sometimes he would ask if I needed anything that he could grab along the way. It was a good feeling to know that I had backup. I'm not sure I could have gotten through that on my own. There's an added mental aspect of solo travel that feeds the adventure. It's an added exposure or something like that. It was nice to have somebody to laugh with about all our misadventures, especially the well-done pants. It was there in the parking lot of the Mission Hotel when I noticed it for the first time. We were so close we could taste it. Seemingly overcoming all obstacles thrown our way. I hit the start button and the bike started. Everything packed up. John was on his bike and we were heading out. It was even before 9 a.m. We were looking good. Then the real slap in the face. I, for some reason, glanced down at the engine oil sight glass. And my heart stopped. Normally I would see a very faint line indicating some relative amount of oil. Now the sight glass was fully obscured with what I can only describe as chocolate-colored, foamy, milk-like madness. As if a Mexican motorcycle elf had replaced my engine oil with gallons of Wendy's Frosties. To be clear, there are no Wendy's in Loretto. I reached over, turned the key to the off position, and took off my helmet. John pulled up to me on his bike to see what the problem was. What's up? Everything okay? he asked. I just shook my head. Water had gotten into the engine compartment. On a scale of not good, this was pegged in the red. Upset, I didn't even notice this prior to now. I knew immediately that I would not be leaving that day. We took about 30 minutes to discuss, and I finally advised John to go on without me. I wasn't sure how long this would take or what measures I would need to fully rectify this new situation. Welcome back to the suck. Now back in the Iguana Hotel, my luggage and extra fuel on the floor in the corner of the room. Still, staring blankly at that darn noisy ceiling fan, imagining it coming unglued from the ceiling at any moment, descending like an airplane propeller onto my face, solving all of my problems in a momentary series of chop-chop-chops. I was desperately trying to construct a decision tree in the back of my mind. If-then scenarios that attempted to drag my carcass out of this current predicament once and for all. I didn't want to go back home with my tail between my legs. I wanted to continue on. Unfortunately, I should mention, the situation continued to unfold and get, again, substantially worse after John headed south on his own. Of course, I changed the engine oil in the bike several times, each time slightly less foamy madness coming out. Finding and using recycled oil helped keep the cost down. I poured a water removal solution used for diesel engine fuel systems directly in the running engine, now bathed in recycled oil. And after a heat cycle, I would drain the milky foam into a large water container. I had bought it at the Mercado days prior. 
I cut a large hole in the top of the container, allowing for both a larger opening, but to spill less oil as it came out of the bike. I kept the handle on the top so I could carry the slippery mess back to the service station and dump it into their used oil drum easily. They knew me pretty well by this time, and just watched me as I came and went. I would always wave. As if it wasn't enough, I had a bigger issue. I alone wasn't able to fix it either. The bike would run, but the charging system was not operating. Meaning, I could start and run the bike on the energy stored in the battery, but without the charging system replacing what was being consumed to run the bike, the battery would slowly discharge, ending up, just like my trip, dead. The generator on the GS sits outside the engine, directly behind the front wheel, covered by thin plastic with vents. It most likely got fried when hit by a wake of water as I descended into what I now refer to locally as the Pond of Broken Dreams. I called every BMW shop in Mexico. There weren't many, it didn't take long. No generators were available, and every shop said it would be over a month for anything they had to order because it would come in on a ship from Germany. I reached out to a San Diego shop. They had one. But it would need to go through customs in order to reach me in Mexico. I was warned about customs. Augie called customs the black hole of shipping. He recommended I pay a friend to bring it. Yeah, that was my best option. Pay somebody to come to Mexico. I called a few friends more as a joke, offering a weekend vacay or more as long as they would like, but schedules were not able to align. I ended up needing to ship it. I soon found out once your package is consumed by this governmental beast known as customs, it may or may not make it out to the other side. To make matters worse, there was no way to know or get any progress of its movements. And my bike remained torn apart and sat in sadness between the outdoor shower and the kitchen of the Iguana Hotel, sitting now as a partially dissected corpse, waiting for the power to shock its two-wheeled monster back to life. It was sad to look at. I told Julie I would clean up the mess once I finished with all of my electrical measurements, running back and forth in and out of my room each time, seeing my crispy pants laying in the corner of the room as if teasing me with the burned example of my own stupidity. Julie was the owner-operator of the iguana. She was from California and fell in love with Baja years ago. She and her husband had bought a hotel, and now she lives most of the year in Loreto managing the iguana. It was Augie who had recommended her place after I told him I would be staying an additional, undisclosed amount of time. I told her my situation to better prepare her for when I pushed my non-functional motorcycle into her neat and tidy parking area. I told her I promised I wouldn't leave any motorcycle parts strewn about, unlike my current situation with regards to my hopes and dreams. She was beyond helpful. I think she really felt bad for me. She connected me with mechanics when I needed to borrow tools. She also offered me encouragement. Some mornings, we would sit outside and drink coffee together, chatting about stories of the past. She gave me a book called Spanish for Gringos, one which I still refer back to upon this day. I truly appreciated her great casita, or guest house. After I brought the motorcycle parts into my room, I tidied up my temporary motorbike workshop. I knew it was time to get out, clear my mind get away from my problems, even if only for a moment. I grabbed my camera and I headed out to take some pictures. The late afternoon light was beginning to draw its shadows like a moving Picasso painting. Julie was sitting outside with her little dog when I told her about the package I was expecting. I had ordered the alternator from the San Diego dealer and filled out all the UPS next day air shipping documents and international declarations using my cell phone, which was not fun. 
It was the very first generation galaxy, and other than that, I was surprised with just how much I could do on such a tiny little device. I was hoping within hope that this hunk of copper and bearings was the actual culprit of my charging system issues. She said she would inform the staff and told me I would need to pay the customs fee upon delivery, so I should make sure I had extra pesos on hand for the transaction. Wow, thanks for that info. That would have really sucked, I said, acknowledging her tremendous helpful advice. And I walked away, headed out with my camera in hand, because what else was there even to do? Shooting photography can take you into a new world. You're focused now in the present and deeply attentive to the moments at hand. The kids were pulling wheelies on their bikes, and I was snapping photos of their smiling, laughing faces. Showing them the images on the back of my camera, they would laugh and jump up and down upon seeing themselves captured in motion. I strolled into the center of town where I found the most beautiful scene. The light was falling on the manicured bushes cut into sculpture-like tunnels, each bathed in the most beautiful golden glow. On the sides, a few women were selling clothing, and a girl with a backpack was walking towards me. I knelt down and snapped the pic. Looking at the golden light on my camera screen, I immediately knew this one was a keeper. In an effort to be the least creepy person who just took a picture of a stranger, I said hi to the girl as she walked by. She had short brown curly hair and a beautiful smile. She quietly said hi as she slowly walked past. She said it in a nice way, as I was sure she was also enjoying this Mexico scene. I glanced back to catch her looking back at me. Wait, she spoke English. I'll have to keep an eye out for her around town. These were the waiting days. Nothing to do but wait and hope. I tried to busy myself wherever I could. I didn't even have my laptop. Around the Iguana parking lot, I had noticed that Julie had a mint-colored cruiser-style bicycle parked against the wall. It hadn't seen the streets or sidewalks in some time. On the front, it had a stainless steel basket used to carry tortillas, maybe some queso, back from the market to your home. It looked kind of like a girl's bike, but I didn't really care. The tires were flat, and the chain needed oil. I wonder where I could find some oil, I said, out loud to myself, glancing down at the oil stains on my pants. Maybe I could squeeze some from my clothing. I grabbed my GoPro and walked the flat tire bike straight to the mechanic shop. I was a frequent flyer there, so I just walked right in like I owned the place, filled the tires with air, stopping first to wave at the owner in the back. I spotted a can of WD-40 on the bench. That would do in a pinch. I gave the chain a quick spray. Good as new. I rode around town, filming Loretto, with nothing else to do. I spotted her at the end of the pier, looking at the metal statues of sea lions eating fish. That's the girl from the photo, the night before, I thought. I parked my macho, mint, two-wheeled friend and walked down the pier to greet her. Sure would be nice to have a friend to talk to during these waiting times. She saw me coming, but acted like she didn't. Noticing this, I all of a sudden was unsure if I should even introduce myself. Whatever, I kept walking, trying not to have a mean look on my face. I introduced myself as I approached, as if to say, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. These statues look really great in the evening light, I said. Directing her gaze to me, she replied, oh really, are you a photographer? Did I see you take my picture yesterday? She asked. Yeah, that was me. I'm no photographer, just someone who loves to take photos. I'm happy to share the image. It's a beautiful one, and you're in it, I replied. My name is Camille, she said, with an outstretched hand. I shook her hand in the way you do for a lady. 
Having a closer look at her now, I could see she was about ten years younger than me, if not more, and about a foot shorter. At 35, I still felt like I was 18, but our age gap felt like this would be a friends-only situation. Acknowledging the reality of the situation in my mind, I just cut to the chase. So I'm kind of stuck here. Well, I've been here for a while, and uh, would you like to get a cup of coffee or something? I promise not to hit on you. I'm just looking for someone to talk with. She laughed, which made me laugh. And then she said, sure, where do you want to go? I pointed to a small coffee shop overlooking the water real close by. How about there? She nodded in approval. Sure, that looks nice, she said. As we walked by my bicycle, I asked her if she liked it. I told her I named it Macho Mint. We laughed as we crossed the street walking into the coffee shop. I held the door for her as she was asking, So tell me, how does one get stuck in Loretto? Using two fingers, putting air quotes around, stuck. Well, what had happened was, I started telling her my story of folly before we even ordered our coffee. I told her about Las Animas, about breaking Dustin, sorry Dustin, about riding with John, the mud, and of course the water. She didn't say a word during the entire exposition. She nodded along as she played with her bracelets. I might have been telling it to myself for the very first time, still trying to untangle it all. Half a cup of coffee later, when I was done telling her my story, she said, That was crazy, and you are stuck here, but it's not a bad place to be stuck. And she was absolutely right. Loretta was pretty spectacular, a diamond in the rough if there ever was one. It was her turn now. I asked what brought her to the wilds of Baja, and of course the obligatory north or south question of coming or going. She replied with south, and began with very few details to explain her story. It was a gap year, she was from France. Mexico is cheap and beautiful. Tacos. Road trip. The usual backpacker highlights. I was sensing she was leaving something out, but I didn't think it was appropriate to ask. Minutes led to hours, and all of a sudden, we both thought at the same time, Okay, done here. So we went our separate ways, agreeing to meet again for another cup of coffee at some future point. No specifics, no guarantees, just allowing for the opportunity should it present itself. She didn't even say how long she would be in town for. At any rate, I rode Macho Mint back to the iguana, wearing a smile only a real conversation with a beautiful girl can give you. The next day, I went to the Pharmacia Guadalajara to print some pictures. I had this silly idea to print the pictures of the kids pulling wheelies on their bikes. I figured I might be able to find them because I had their image, and it was a very small town. I also printed the picture of Camille in golden light. It was a real photo. I was lucky to have captured it. The clerk that was processing my images pointed at one of the kids and said something I didn't understand. Back then, I had almost zero Spanish. She called over a friend who explained in English, Oh, she knows that boy. He is her cousin. Now, I explained how somehow I was planning on trying to find him, and she just solved my dilemma. The two girls laughed and talked between themselves, giggling about something I wasn't privy to. I just stood there like a gringo, one who needed to work on his Spanish, and just tried to smile. They handed me the envelope. Inside were my printed images. They showed me where the boy lived on a Google map I had pulled up on my phone. I paid and walked out the door, heading towards this kid's house. Walking in the Baja sun, navigating on foot now, I realized something I hadn't done since the very night I had arrived in Loretto. 
felt good about myself. I was even smiling about what may happen, in an unknown and curious sort of way. I was remembering, if only in a glimpse, what it feels like to not hate myself. Knowing full well, I was out here in Baja looking for some new version of me, a yet-to-be-discovered me. Finding him meant I needed to try and fail. Some unknown amount of times. If I can only manage not to sink back into the place where I focused on my own lifelong history of stupidity and how it had gotten me stuck here. The best part about this was I knew this was special, not because of the outcome, but because it wasn't planned. I was just bored and doing all I can while paddling through the sandy rivers of now. I'm not a fan of cocky Brad. I do my best to keep him in the basement chained up, far away from the levers of control in my mind. But as hard as I try to bind him, he sneaks out every so often, reminding me he is, in fact, a part of me. Away from a great many things, but I can't run away from myself. Maybe I shouldn't punish confident Brad too harshly for cocky Brad's actions. I must have a personality disorder. Is this really happening? If I'm to continue to operate in society under the radar, I can never let anyone know about Cocky Brad. What was in those tacos this morning? Okay, game face. A few steps away from Wheelie Kid's house, I tried using Google Translate in hopes to put a sentence together explaining to the parents why I was knocking at their door. I noticed I was very close to the same location I had taken the photo only a few days before. Thinking this was the correct house, I knocked on the door and took a step back, leaving some space. The door was opened by a woman with a curious and confused look on her face. I stumbled and stammered as I began to unveil maybe the worst attempt at Spanish. I just stopped in the middle. Lo siento. I'm sorry and I just held up the printed photograph. Oh, the woman gasped, covering her mouth with her hand. She called into the house sharp and quick. Yanni? Very soon the boy appeared, looking at his mom like he was in trouble. I knelt down as he recognized me from the night before. I handed him the photo. Slowly and carefully he took it, from my hands, staring at it with eyes the size of dinner plates. His mother beaming next to him, at that moment I realized I should have printed two, one for the mom to keep as well. I gave him a thumbs up and a high five from the kneeling position. Then I stood up and waved, walking slowly. As I looked down the path, I could see her watching me from a distance. She didn't seem as embarrassed to see me now, Waving to Camille, I continued walking her way. I was surprised to see her and secretly knew I had a photo for her as well. A well-intentioned secret is a seed you plant without knowing the intensity or even the flavor of the beauty which awaits. She waited as I walked up and asked pensively, What was that all about? Oh, I took some pictures of these boys doing wheelies on their bikes the other evening, and I thought I would just print them and deliver them. After all, they only cost three pesos per print, and I think he liked it. I said all of this in one long sentence, crushed together, smiling. I remember that first time I gave away a picture to an unsuspecting person. That's a great feeling, giving a gift to someone you don't even know, but sharing a special moment where they understand that gift can only be for them. Like a kind of spirit alchemy or some junk. That's awful nice of you, she said, following quickly with, Coffee? My treat this time. She said it in that French accent I won't even try to replicate. She picked the place and we sat in the sun. Trust is a slippery surface on the road. It can give way at any moment. 
One second, you're talking with a person who is helping you, and the next moment, you believe you are being taken advantage of, but you don't know why. I'm not trying to say it's a horrible thing. This is part of the adventure, the adventure of learning people, their motivations, their faults, and their gifts. I'll say this now and direct. People are so overwhelmingly good, I struggle to explain the tiny fraction which collect into the not good category. Those apples, they spoil far more than the bunch, and we know it. Camille was feeling more comfortable with me around this time. The air was cleared of any unease, and she barely messed with her bracelets at all. You could feel the solace in her voice as she would pop between French and English and Spanish. I didn't do much of the talking this time. I was waiting for her to ask the question. I was waiting for her to ask if I had printed the picture I had taken of her. I was listening to her and thinking, if I focus on what I want her to say, will she say it? I might be able to will this thought into her head. She caught my distraction, but didn't know the location of my thoughts. I told her how my generator for the bike might not fix my issue, and if that's the outcome, I didn't know what to do next other than consider shipping the bike back to a dealer in the States, or maybe I could buy a used truck and take it. It was a heavy turn in our conversation. She was now seeing why I had asked to talk with her the day before. Then she laid out her situation, in truth and in full. She had come to Mexico with her boyfriend. They had been together all through college. It was a difficult relationship, but had gotten really bad only a few days before. They had bought a small car in northern Baja, a yellow VW Bug. She showed me a picture on her phone, telling me, He still had it. She claimed to have walked out on him for the very last time. It's over for good, she said. She also said she was really scared of him. I felt really bad for her. Could have been that she was, in a sense, lost and now looking for a new path. I had been lost. I am lost. In the universe of conversations in and surrounding relationships, I have no advice to give. I think this was good because I don't think she wanted any advice. It was truly her dilemma, her journey, her pain. Her face began to turn red as she fought back tears as long as she could. Then she started to cry as the staff stared at us, wondering what I had done. I couldn't wait anymore. I pulled the photo from the envelope, and I slid it across the table, pushing it in front of her now-lowered face. I pointed at her under the archway on the photo. This is you, I said. That's the girl who said hi to me and smiled. Now looking at herself in the photo, she started to laugh. This is so beautiful, she said, switching now back and forth from English to French. The golden light. I know, right? I told her. You see now why I had to take that picture. She looked at me and with a sudden movement gave me a long hug. Like a real hug. Long enough to make me wonder when I had last received one. The kind of hug you give to old friends who you have missed and been apart from. I was glad the crying girl had given me a hug for a lot of reasons, but mostly because people were staring at us, and it was good to know that now they knew I was not the cause of the tears. She pulled back and again looked deeply at the image. This is for me, right? Yes, I said. With two easy payments of $25, this too can be yours, I said sarcastically as we both burst into laughter. 
She slid out her chair abruptly and stood up and said, I want to see your broken motorbike. Show it to me now. We gathered our things as I continued the jokes, as those do who are not as blessed in the looks department. I will show you the bike, but I have to tell you up front, you are not allowed to fall in love with it. It may be broken, but you cannot have it. Be warned, it may capture your heart. Those words left my mouth with smooth confidence, landing at their destination, dripping with sarcasm, because this was always how I talked about motorcycles. Julie came out of her house as I was lamenting over my two-wheeled disaster with Camille, pointing at fairings and the lack of fairings. The fountain sang its dripping water song softly in the background as Julie introduced herself and asked if Camille would also need a room. She shook her head and said, No, I'm at the Mission Hotel, as she continued to look at the partially disassembled and sad GS. The bike was still covered in dust and red mud from the salt flats. While Camille listened and looked on, she was putting together the pieces of the stories I had told her the day before. I could see the puzzle coming together from the variations on her face. What an amazing place this is, she exclaimed, walking towards the fountain with the tiny toy dinosaur roaming on the edge of the waterfalls. Then Julie said, Okay, well, you two have fun, and quietly entered back into her home from which she had come. The little dog yapped a few yippy barks before she told it to stop, per usual. All of a sudden, I realized I was starving. Do you want to get some food? I asked, while Camille, still standing, wandering around, gazing starry-eyed at the open and tranquil garden space of the iguana. Sure, she replied in a casual way. Do you mind if I use your bathroom first? Which room is yours? I walked over and put the key into the lock, opening the door to a floor covered in motorcycle parts, not currently attached to the bike, and there were many. Camille walked in and giggled. Oh my, you have some work to do. She stepped around them, into the room now making her way towards the bathroom. The soft light of the evening was beginning to draw its shadows. Julie turned on the outside lights of the iguana, and closed her curtains. The busy noises of the workday began to quiet as the dinner hour now approached. In the distance, you could hear a man yell, Tortilla! as he sped off on a moto. All the human noises now playing together as an orchestra, alongside the unbalanced melody of a ceiling fan. End of part three.